down the bottom of the track, we we purposefully made the decision to take lots of hits. It was it was using up time or wasting time to over control the sled and avoid some hits on the wall. So I'd smack the side, go up I think fourteen and then hit three we had three more lefts to the finish line and I'd roll around the corner and then tap the wall, roll around the corner, tap the wall. And I think at the, equally I was thinking, A, this hurts and <laughs> I probably not helping my speed, but B, you know, I know what I'm doing and I just need to get to the finish line. I just need to get there. Well, hello there to you. It's Steve Ingham here and I'm chuffed and humbled that you've tuned in, whether it's for the first time or if you're a regular listener. So I've spent my career working towards and I'm fascinated by the process of supporting other people in the pursuit of performance whether it's in sports, business, arts, exploration. And it's my real hope that these conversations I have with performers, coaches, researchers can help you wonder and think differently and and cope maybe with what you're dealing with at the moment or just simply nudge you along. Well, this is our last episode of 2020. What a year 2020 has been. It's thrown seemingly nearly everything at us. But we've got time for one more amazing conversation And this week I speak with Lizzie Yarnall. So Lizzie is double Olympic champion in that rather chilled out sporting event, Bob Skeleton, where athletes leg it as fast as they can and jump on a board and hurtle down an icy track at a speed that would overtake most motorway traffic. Just remember that when you're cruising at 70 miles an hour, imagine Lizzie Yarnall whizzing past you. So Lizzie was spotted through a talent identification scheme selected to be part of the development team for Skeleton Racing and rose to be able to compete on the world stage. And then she won the World Cup Series and eventually took Olympic gold in Sochi in 2014. And in this conversation, Lizzie talks through the journey towards that gold medal, how she was able to channel some of the talents that she already had, that she could just simply harness towards this pursuit, how she could focus under the pressure of doing the extreme event that she does and taking the step to the highest heights in the sport. Lizzie also discusses burning out and needing to take time out from the grind of the sport. What I found really compelling about Lizzie and took really from this conversation was Lizzie is a really thoughtful, fun, quite softly spoken person and she's ever ready to recognise the contribution of the people around her, those who supported her to be able to perform. But what is underlying all the way through this conversation, it was really present, is a steel, a grit, a commitment to being a student of her craft and her event and with a real fiendish ability to compete. Lizzie Arnold, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to me on the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you so much. Thank- oh, sorry. Just <laughs> <laughs> start again? Um, I, no, I think it's, it's always good to, uh, to be honest. I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. How are you? I'm, I'm good. So I'm, um, it's not light yet and it's getting dark there. So that gives us a hint as to the time difference that we're navigating through, <laughs> for, through the recording. So um, tell me, what's, what's life like for you now? 
yeah life is both busy and relaxed out here in Auckland so we're 13 hours time different from the UK and 13 is obviously quite irritating because it's not 12 <laughs> it's not easy to work out um but yeah we're, we're out here for for my husband James's work in the America's Cup so I'm here kind of being a single mum because the, their working hours are so long I'm I'm here with our daughter um so yeah we're, we're just kind of really lucky to be in an a non-COVID environment at the moment, but really missing family, friends, everything close, everything English, um, and the normality, I guess. But twenty, you know, there's no normality to twenty twenty. I think it's embracing that change. Yeah, well, if you're going to have a sanctuary for maybe a year out somewhere, New Zealand's probably a good place to do that, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know, it is amazing. But I have to be honest, the quarantine in a government facility, yes, it was a hotel, but it was tiny and um, you it, uh, quarantining in any place, as I'm sure lots of people have been through, where you 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 like order your food, so food comes to you, then you do have to do your washing up in the sink, in the bathroom sink. It, honestly, it's just, it got to a point where it was just unbearable. So I'm just glad we got through that together and we're out on the other side down here in New Zealand. Oh, wow. I was imagining quarantining to be sort of in the Hilton somewhere, but that sounds a bit more what I imagine a pet would go through at quarantine. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's funny because you, you're all kind of in it together. Everyone who's quarantining, you, you're, the army are stationed kind of in the hotels, keeping an eye and, and looking after you as well. Um. But my daughter kept, like, there was nowhere to go. So the amount of time she would fall off the bed or bang her head and we'd have to go down to the nurse's station and explain yet again that she's got all this energy but nothing to do. Um, and, yeah, it's it was it was a really funny experience going into it. I thought, right, we're going to do these jobs, do these admin stuff that we've been putting off. You know, I had big ambitions of jobs to do. But sometimes, as a human, I think, emotionally, I'm exhausted physically I'm exhausted and I just have to like like manage my expectations of myself and quarantine was a funny little kind of bubble window into that Mm. and so is that is that a role reversal for you and your husband where previously he was supporting you and and now you're in support of him (laughs) (laughs) yeah we we kind of um flip-flop so so he was working at the um vancouver olympics as part of the support team we didn't even really know each other at that point at all um we met like when we worked together for about five years before we even thought that each other was interesting enough to go out um so we were together by 2014 in sochi and then after that, in 2016, I think it was, was James's first America's Cup. So I had the games, he had the cup. Then I had the 2018 games, and now he's got this America's Cup in 2021. So it's we've always sort of done the constant flip of um, who supports who. It's literally every day because we're both kind of exhausted. And I, th- I think that that's made for a good relationship for us because we kind of get the high performance thing. We also get the complete exhaustion thing. And also the real long-term goals of what does short-term stuff look like, but also what is what what's the real thing that everyone's aiming for, everyone together, the whole team. Um, so yeah, now I'm just here supporting him, trying to keep a toddler entertained, and um, yeah, try not to drink too much coffee and too many cakes as well. <laughs> that's that's really <laughs> fascinating. I think um, 
trying to trying to imagine or think of somebody who's got a similar sort of dynamic or a couple. You know, I've got imagining the the cycling Kennys, but they're both pursuing goals at the same sort of time. Whereas perhaps you've got these sort of conversations of saying, "Well, when I'm being supported, I like this," or <laughs> <laughs> "I like to support you in this way." Um, you've also both both got your needs in whichever role that you're you're playing there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think I've just been fortunate that I've I've sort of met someone who who doesn't ever tell me what to do because you know relationships are also different but I just couldn't stand someone who tries to give me advice he just listens I probably give more advice so I have to kind of bite my tongue a little bit um but you do don't you You switch roles and you and you just try and help each other work it all out um yeah that's interesting. So you emailed me to tell me that you're doing some, um, you're training as an executive coach. Is is that for a career or is that to improve your active listening skills for your husband? <laughs> Do you know what? I met, I met quite a few people on the course initially and they said how it, or maybe it was on the second part of the course because they were on it because the, the, the active listening had been so fundamental in helping their relationships because there was one guy who said I learned all I needed to say is after the the other half had sort of you know had a rant or or released this emotion all he would say was what do you need me to do or what do you need of me um and it's it I I realized then I think the the uh, all the lessons I was going to learn about listening and proper good deep conversations um, through this executive coaching but it's my aim to be an executive coach I'm currently ca- trying to collate all my hours and and get my um, executive coaching qualifications but yeah it's it's been a really interesting journey all it's all come from my work with the performance lifestyle PLs in the EIS that's where this inspiration all came from I'd love to get into that and so I'm gonna I'm writing that down what do you need of me um so Rachel, my wife, co-director of Supported Champions, is, does our executive coaching. She's, she's been through that process. And, and, and if I say something, if she's a bit stuck or she's having a bit of a rant or something, and I say, what are your options? She says, don't, don't, I know what you're doing. <laughs> so she, she'll know if I'm trying to go into coach mode. Um, okay, so famously, you signed up for Girls for Gold. And that... That's talent ID scheme, this idea of, okay, we're going to look to see what talent lies in a population. Um, My memory of the the campaign was that it was was a relatively blank slate. It was sort of girls for gold. There's no specific, you know, it was, I think there was um, quite some narrow offerings, like to Taekwondo, for example, um, later on. So what can you remember what was going through your head when you saw the the advert and thought yep that's me <laughs> Yeah it's it's hard how far back you want me to go and how you know deep that thinking is but I guess in short I always loved sport I always wanted to be Denise Lewis um doing the heptathlon at you know 14 GB not you know I wanted to be an Olympian not to win but just to to wear the kit to be a part of it I knew I was skilled at sport I could pick up any sport almost immediately but my trouble was really transitioning that to elite level and in athletics that was my passion I would train my heart out you know even as a young teenager I would 
get all the multidisciplinary coaches in a room and we'd try and plan the season and I was driving that as as a young athlete um but by 18 19 I just was not I wasn't selected for the internationals I never got the GB vest so when girls for gold was kind of sent through I was at university I just started uni I was I guess 18 and a half and it was it was a UK sport run search looking for athletes for seven different sports maybe in modern pentathlon I'm sure there was cycling and, and maybe a rowing or some water-based sport as well my sister Katie she's two years older than me she had already got into the handball team two years before in the sporting giant search so I I think it was a bit of the fact that I knew I I could do better I could if I could just find a sport I could maybe make it to the international but also a bit of the fact that well if Katie got through then and I'm the sporty sister that's what it was that I am (laughs) she's good but you know I'm the one who's sporty that you know maybe I should try too so yeah literally just signed up and went up to Loughborough Uni they they kind of tested at different locations and that was almost bittersweet because Loughborough was obviously my dream as a sports sports person but I didn't get the grades for the joint honours course I wanted at Loughborough they offered me straight geography and I said you know I'm going to st- you know stick with what I said I'll go to another university so we went up to Loughborough walking around in this glorious like you know just palace of of ability and sports genes and I I knew I wasn't intelligent enough to go there to study so it was a bit all a bit weird um yeah we did the first testing day and I was set on doing modern pentathlon it was basically the only one that I knew on the list I'd done lots of horse riding as a kid I could reasonably swim and running was terrible I'll be honest um and I was hoping for that I was aiming for that I had in my head you know I literally had our lunch bags me and Gemma like one of my best mates we had our lunch bags of jelly babies bananas Lucas ate everything that you need like prepped ready I've just got to get good numbers for this modern pentathlon thing and and what did you can you remember what you did uh and what you excelled at what was the bit that they made perhaps the eyebrows raise up and think oh okay she's probably got some talent here it was the 30 meter sprint test you know it's for skeleton it's all about the start so um of all the tests that i did cycling i really gave it all out it was like a three minute test and you could just see you could physically see that other athletes were much better than you but with the sprinting i guess because we weren't um, you know racing face to face it was just me and these little cones in a sports horn just you you're sprinting away I got a reasonably good time and from 1500 girls or women initially tested I think 100 went through to the skeleton so we went to Bath Uni um, and that was a really weird experience um, just going to another high performing university seeing these these athletes who like everyone had six packs everyone had the right kit you know the the perfect crop top and the matching shorts the best spikes and they all looked physically you know the ones that would be chosen I didn't feel as a javelin thrower shot putter that I would have what they wanted at all um and again I had jelly babies and I remember we went up to the push track 
at Bath Uni and I like offered round the <laughs> jelly babies and just trying to like chat to people, talk to people because I was so nervous. I didn't feel like um, I belonged there really. Um, yeah, it was it was a funny experience. You kind of go back to thinking, right, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to start conversations here and, and try and show them that um, if if you pick me, you know, I'll do a good job. So just to go back a moment then, but there, there must have been a proposition of saying, OK, we because of your sprinting, we think that the skeleton could be a really interesting option for you. Something like that. Um, what was the conversation in your head of thinking... Well, I assume there was sort of a, what's that? And then a, hmm, maybe, okay. Or was it sort of not too serious enough that you're not throwing yourself down a mountain just yet that you could sort of still just give it a go? Yeah, I think that's right, that the fact that skeleton itself wasn't in front of me. It was was just getting through the stages. It was trying to be in the group that was whittled down. So from the 100 women... We went to 50 and then you got an email a few weeks later and the 50 um, went down to 20. So that's all that I had in my mind. And when I was initially sent the letter from UK Sports saying I'd been selected for skeleton, um, I had, I'd obviously never heard of this sport. I'd never seen it. I didn't (laughs) know anything about, I loved skiing as a kid, but it was just kind of, um, so vastly different to anything I tried I think that kind of must have caught my imagination and it literally was the fact that it was um it was a high performance sport somewhere where I knew that there would be the physiologists the psychologists the nutritionists all the people who were passionate about sport I kind of just wanted to say hey I you know let me be a part of it and let's see what we can do I just wanted to kind of get my foot in the door So I remember going to, so I did a bit of work with the bobsleigh team sort of between 98 and 2003, I think it was, and have been down a bobsleigh track, um, sort of got thrown down it a little bit. Although although I was with the USA coach who designed the park, the the track at Park City in Salt Lake. Um, So I was in safe safe hands. (laughs) But I remember at a training camp in 2000 where they started to do some of this work at the British Olympic Association and it was very much um, let's try and pull in some talent from various different quarters so the the summer camp previously had got uh, Mark Lewis Francis, Mo Farah, Goldie Sayers, um, some 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 real legends of, of uh, athletics in the future. Um, at the winter sports event there was a few sports looking around thinking we haven't got any talent, so let's try and find some. So their initial go was very much physical testing. And Sean Olsen, the pilot of the four-man Bob in 98, uh, bronze medal uh, winner at Nagano, he, he was shaking his head, saying they've, they've, tested, they've tested them physically. Fantastic, but they, they haven't looked at the mentality yet. So... Was there any sort of assessment of your mental approach, your um, whether it's thrill-seeking, whether it is um, ability to perform under pressure, anything like that before you started actually sliding? 
Yeah, it's a great question and one I don't necessarily definitely know the answer to. I'm sure from UK Sport the answer would be yes, there were there were clear psychometric tests, but um, as an athlete in the early stages of that process, it felt that it was all very physical. Um, and that's what I was in a basic way. That's all I could kind of control. That's all I can change. So that's what I focused on. What I do remember, though, is by the October uh, that ye- later that year, or maybe even the year after, we were given, um, we had kind of booklets. And in the booklets, each week we would receive it, it would have information on um, how well we'd done in in like we had German lessons at that point we had strength sessions and push sessions and there was lots that was provided for us there was like info in this booklet of like how we were developing with the team how we were developing developing our mental I don't know what it was mentality as an individual and only at that point was I really kind of picking up on the importance of um of all this other stuff and actually almost to a point of irritation because those are like my natural tendencies that's my natural preference of how I sit within the team or as an individual so it's kind of tricky to get that feedback especially as a young athlete because you it's not always the answer that you want and that's fine now as a more mature athlete I know that understanding who I am as a person is all about you know bettering myself but the psychological testing, I'm I'm sure they were doing and certainly happened when we got onto ice the first time. You know, you, you go down and you either just love it and, and or I guess there's three. I think you love it and you want to go again. You sort of are quite scared, as I was, pretty scared, but thinking, OK, I can kind of know what's going on here. I'm I'm tempted to give it another try and then there's that third option of thinking no way this is this is not for me um yeah and I guess you you just see you see straight away whether people are going to be up for a sport like skeleton or not it's it's super super adrenaline filled thrilling like awesome but at the same time um yeah pretty pretty um (laughs) I'm not sure what the right word is it's tough it is a tough sport so um, did you have any coaching as to how's it going to feel, what to do under different scenarios? I, I, presumably, presumably you got on and you just got gently shoved or you went half, <laughs> half track or something like that. Well, how did it, how did it start and, and how well prepared yeah. were you for potentially just getting thrown down like a rag doll? Yeah, so we had this amazing coach, Mark Wood. He was my talent coach for like a couple of years at least and with the team for a long time. Um, he's out now, doesn't coach with the British, but he he was there on our first camp. He was there for my first um, goes down the track and probably most tracks around the world. And he was amazing at just like preparing people, giving you the information that you needed to know but not giving you too much information that it then just, you know, took over your mind. So we walked down the track before we actually got on a sled. We saw what the corners looked like, which lefts and right, and and then were told to to do a bit of homework to prep for our first goes on the ice. Um, part of that prep was cu- cutting up a camping mat and sticking it, gaffer taping it to our like loosest clothing. Um, so I had shoulders, elbows, wrists covered, everything kind of Michelin man uh, ready for my first run. Um, <laughs> and then I guess it's it's hard to explain how it's going to feel 
but I guess we would have been told it would obviously be fast, just focus on those few corners that we were told about. And then once you've done it once, it kind of, you 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 understand the, the vibrations, the noise, the the motion and the fact that you don't really have any control at that stage. And only then can you really build on on any kind of changes. You've kind of just got to go down and hope that hope that you enjoy it a little bit at least to carry on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that the camping mat was the final assessment. Um, right, so <laughs> here's a camping mat. Go into your room, cut it up and stick it to yourself. As the yeah, she's still here. She's she's passed it. She's gone for it. She doesn't think this is loopy enough, and uh, she's yeah, she's turned up. Yeah, you know it's all a part of it, isn't it? And I I just I don't mind that stuff. I I prefer the pre- I prefer to prep. I mean, most athletes do, don't they? To know that I've done something to try and make a, situ- a bad situation a bit better. But even as a kid, when we would ski, my good friend Bonds. He said to me, Lizzie, what you need to do at the top of the hill is just bend down into a little ball and tuck your poles underneath your armpits and just, you know, stay there and that will be really good. And I, you know, seven-year-old Lizzie did that and literally went down the whole of this run and my dad's careering after me saying, Lizzie, stop, what are you doing? And uh, yeah, I think sometimes I just had that mentality that you just got to be a bit out of control. I remember the feeling of skiing of feeling that looseness like when you're catching the air you're not quite in control but loving that feeling and not knowing what was going to happen next that's that's an interesting one in terms of so you you could almost sense and connect with um something at a very very young age of just happy and to explore that sort of thrill-seeking side of it um i think there's a i I don't know this is just too hackneyed as an idea but there does uh, certainly the idea of thrill seeking types people that climb mountains people that throw themselves off and do these crazy parachute jumps and so on um that there's a certain mentality to that where they're always looking for that they don't really have the amygdala light up very much so they're always pursuing that that sort of uh, adrenaline rush um you you seem quite um emotional you seem quite uh, in touch with how you're feeling you you seem as though you're um you're very aware of the situation but you've almost perhaps have that switch as well of actually you know what that's something i really love too yeah i think you've you've got that nail on the head because or whether it's just the competitive edge there's definitely a change when i'm at the track and this started at an early point when i was uh, even at the athletics track, my mum would say to me, you should talk to the other athletes like everyone else does, like have a chat and like, you know, just talk to, and I would say, no, I've got to switch on, I'm focused, I'm thinking about the next jump. It was always in long jump because it was the second day in heptathlon and everyone knew each other and, you know, you're getting into the second day. So when I'm when I'm at competition, you know, I just switch into that, that mode um, completely. And the, is the thrill-seeking thing now. I've retired. I've got no desire at all to do anything. I, I just, I, 
even training is weird doing going to the gym just would feel really weird I swim I run but it's it's amazing how it all changes now I've retired that's interesting you've you've you're spent are you um yeah (laughs) um you mentioned something there that I was going to pick up on that was interesting switch I think there's something kind of unusual about that and or or very particular and, and special being able to um not necessarily just be focused and determined and, and crazed all the time to do that when it's the right moment um and i can imagine how particularly relevant that is to to skeleton because one of the factors that i noticed about sort of touring with the bobs bobsleigh team was i looked around and thought this is quite bleak <laughs> we're in a hotel and then we travel to the track and we're up at the top of an icy mountain and we're, we're all huddled in a room and then one of them goes out and throws himself down the, the the track i thought this is quite a strange existence warming up in the car parks and i would imagine that that deselects quite a lot of people too how were you in that sort of scenario yeah, I think you've explained it really well, actually, that you do live in the hotel room where you're doing stretching or prepping for the gym or eating the right food, recovering. And then you go to the track, you warm up, you explosively have this performance, you're exhausted, then you just basically go back to the hotel. And um, in those in, in living on circuit for six months of the year, it was very apparent early on that that camaraderie and my relationships with fellow athletes was really important to get through like literally just get through to have someone to have a cup of tea with so Laura and I we we started um, skeleton at the same point in girls for gold then we kind of joined up with Donna as well so as you get better you sort of move through the ranks of competition and we ended up on uh, world cup and ICC with Laura Donna and and me Lizzie and the three of us were just I think keep each other going that in an evening when you're at the hotel and it's looking a bit bleak, it's winter, it's cold, minus 20, you've got someone to just watch Downton Abbey with or have a cup of tea and chat about life. And actually these women were my, like literally my hardest competition. And on the track the next day, I was desperate as they were desperate to beat me. I was trying to think, how can I improve? How Although I was self-focused, it is about trying to be better, of course. And thank goodness I had that ability to to make friends in a way that we truly could switch off and be together as humans as well as athletes. So Laura and Donna, just give us a, the intro to to those. Um, as in those people? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Laura Dees, um, she, she came from equestrian, actually. So we had a bit of a similar understanding Um of growing up with horses we we both lived through house renovations as well so it's funny the things you connect with people about and then we did skeleton together for 10 years and actually ended up on the podium in Pyeongchang um together I won the gold medal Laura won the bronze medal and Laura's still competing aiming for Beijing which is really exciting and then Donna Crichton um yeah she's just both these women were, were my bridesmaids Donna was doing the sport long before Laura and I began she she was the knowledgeable one the one that had seen it and done it and knew and I just learned so much from her how to you know hold myself in competition how to respond how to um 
be a good person sometimes in life you meet those people that are yeah just really lovely people so I'm very lucky to have them both in my life see this there's that sort of uh, dichotomy again Downton Abbey cup of tea I heard you knit um that that doesn't seem that this is the sort of the compatible outlet for for Bob Skeleton but that's intriguing I remember doing some work with the judo team and we did some sprint training and uh and I told them all to tuck their pockets of their their track suits and and shorts the other way in case they caught a thumb in it and they were like oh we like broken thumbs and (laughs) when they went back to their residences all they watched was compilations of fights that led to some sort of injury which which really fitted with their sporting pursuit but Downton Abbey and Bob Skeleton again I'm I'm feeling this sort of (laughs) maybe it's the yin and the yang of right I get the adrenaline there the last thing I need is is some sort of adrenaline based (laughs) uh, tv habit yeah but you know the ability to switch on and off was something that I used literally second by second so between the runs of a competition you have run one then it could be literally an, an hour or half an hour before run two and in that time I can't stay in my suit I can't stay doing high knees I've got to at least chill out or eat refuel drink a cup of tea I always had a soup container thermos container with tea in and I'd say I'll just do the first run then I'll go and have my cup of tea but I would also begin to sleep in the changing room a room full of people but I would put down my yoga mat and just sleep in front of them and that was just for me jump over my head for me but quite quickly I realised that actually the psychological impact on my competition of just lying right in front of them switched off was um was really quite effective and something that I kept doing right um through both Olympic finals as well I can imagine you just (laughs) everyone else is pacing up and down looking super focused maybe with some hip-hop in their ears or something and there's just (laughs) you chilling with your cup of tea (laughs) yeah I know it's it is so weird thinking back about it but I didn't think it was weird until other people start picking up on it. But there you go. So there's another thing that you mentioned there, two runs. And I always thought that was so peculiar, but but also a necessary uh, sort of procedure of of practising. You just don't get that much practice. So that that is in in itself really odd. I know that the track, the various different tracks are so different. And I presume you'd be practicing visualization uh, beforehand and so on. But just that uncertainty of, oh, it's that track. I only get two practice goes before we actually start um, competition. How did you get your head around that? It is tricky. It's hard for anyone to understand, I think. that So you have six official training runs before a competition. Most races have two runs. The Olympics is a bit odd. It has four, which is over two days. Um, and you're right, the fact that you only get six minutes practice, essentially, on a track. So Park City that we were talking about, I go there once a year. And Park City, the start bit, so where I'm running with the sled next to me, in Park City it's not covered so um, the issue with that is it snows a lot in Utah. It's high up in Utah and there are bears everywhere. But it, when it snows, it snows. And if you're the athlete that's, you know, late in the order and it starts just, you know, starting to snow, it gets you, it is snowing. There's snow 
in the grooves where I need to push the sled. You can't run because you're going to slip over. So even when you've got six minutes practice, these are so severely affected by the weather, the, the rain or the snow, the ice temperature, whether bobsleigh has been there the week before or luge because the, the ice cut is a bit different. How you enter and exit the corner, the ice will be cut, literally cut differently. Um, and you, you just so many things can change a race. Um, so visualisation is hugely important. And I remember going to the Junior World Championships. I think it was my first Junior World Championships in Park City. I had only been there, I think I'd done 10 runs because we had the six runs official training and a few extra at the start because we were so young. And I lost that race by one hundredth of a second against a Canadian athlete, obviously Canada and America. She was able to travel and had been to this track loads of times. And I was just sat there thinking, you know, I've had these two runs in competition. We've combined the time and how it's ended up is I'm one hundredth of a second behind her. And I was so frustrated and there's nothing you can do. You know, the race is the race. But what is the, what is one hundredth of a second? Is it me just literally pushing my head forward as I, as I go through the line? Um, yeah, and it, I think that was me early on in my career. You quickly start to realise that it's not just about those two runs or the four runs. You have to start making the changes or controlling the controllables every single day because if psychologically all I can think about is I've only got these two runs and what happens on the day is all that counts I probably would have lost my mind I had to bring it down to kind of the ground bring it down to to a, a level that I could manage and try and make it that slow slow impact and how I visualized that impact was building up a wall and building it up building up my foundations and at the top of the foundations not on purpose, but it would become a podium. Um, and that's where I hoped I'd see myself. So an experience like that, where you perhaps haven't won, so it didn't fully ratify your um, that you were the winner, but it also gave you a lot of clues as to, well, I've done that with minimal preparation against opposition that has probably got vastly advanced um, advantage. And then you're starting to think, oh, I've, I've got it. When did you start realising, I've got a shout here? Years later, years later, I think. I started doing the sport in 2009, um, just, you know, learning how to do it. And then it wasn't until 2012, so only a few years later, I was invited to be um, at the World Championships, the, the Senior World Championships, I only got my spot because I'd actually won the Junior World Championships that year. You get a free pass. And so this was in Lake Placid, America. Um, I'd been to the track, I think, once before as a training couple of weeks. And I was in the room, in this little weird changing room, you know, with the car park outside where everyone's running around. And in the room was was Katie Ulander, Noel Piker Space, amazingly strong Americans. The Brits, we had Amy Williams, you know, reigning Olympic champion, Shelley Rudman, she'd had a silver mm. Olympic medal as well. And then I was the third British athlete, this young upstart. And through the competition, obviously I switched on that aggression, I switched on that part of Lizzie that I needed for the race. And through the through the competition of four runs, I sort of slowly went from like I don't know, eighth position to sixth to to third. And I sort of slowly kind of clawed my way up. And I ended up in third position in bronze medal place. 
and in fourth was Amy Williams and in fifth was Shelley Rudman and that afternoon um, I realised that yeah maybe whatever was needed to be a skeleton athlete and, and to compete in skeleton I had something a little bit of it and I only had two years before Sochi so it was on basically and and then how did you process that um so did you compare notes with Amy and Shelley or did you did you sort of reconcile that with your coach or other support staff of thinking am I there did you have those discussions internally with with, with yourself or with others oh um I think it was probably an internal um just kind of working it through an internal reflection the coach I'd been working with Mickey Grunberger he actually left the British team at the end of the season that was the last race and he went to work for the Swiss I think at the time um so I so I started the next season with a new coach I had someone new to work with Amy Williams I think actually retired that summer or at least just did one extra winter and then retired so we didn't although we were training partners for a few years we didn't connect on a on a level of kind of sliding intelligence at all she was always far beyond what I was achieving but Shelley Rudman although we didn't compare notes as such she was someone who I competed with um up until Sochi and she was someone that I'd kind of just rubbed along with in the way that I was learning from her I was everything she was giving out I was trying to kind of taken to to appreciate to just absorb she was someone who who knew how to compete and had longevity in the sport um yeah it's um yeah (laughs) Mm, amazing so and then approaching Sochi uh and you're starting to get some results um how was it going into to Sochi going into Sochi um I can I can reflect on it now I wouldn't have said at the time that it, I was getting to a place where Sochi was my race to lose um the world cup season leading into the olympics was a really good battle between Noelle Pikes Pace the american and I so we would literally flip and she would have first and I would go for first she would have second and I'd come third and it was just a real great battle back and forth and actually that really kept my focus not only on me but but on that on her and on um trying to just keep developing forward the fact that there are different races there are different uh, venues each week we're going to a new place she had something or other athletes had that ability for that track I might have had it the next week and the fact that the Olympics were a track that no one really knew only the Russians had been there a lot but everyone else was just kind of starting from the same place and uh, that was really exciting, especially as a nation that didn't have a track. We didn't have any advantage um, at home. But what we had a huge advantage in was sharing knowledge, sharing um, our understanding and learning very quickly. And I'm keen to, to ask you when you realised that it was a, a possibility of the, of the win, almost as much within the competition itself um, my memory of the of watching it um, was the overlay technology that that they would show on the TV, where they would compare uh, the the current leader with the previous run, for example. And I remember by the time that they got got to your was it fourth run, I think they they almost didn't fit on the screen 
because such as we was wow. was your advantage um so how were you able to stay focused and and, and intentional about what you needed to do to continue on on the road um in the right way when you knew that the advantage was strong through the competition there wasn't any knowledge that the advantage was strong enough so there wasn't a need to stay in it i was absolutely committed and being a young younger athlete against those who just had so much experience, you can lose two, three, four um, tenths of a second within a run easily, you know. So I knew going into the second day of competition, I had a half a second advantage on Noelle, that if she'd gone home, if she'd done her homework, if she had rested, if she was ready, she could easily just whoop my ass, basically. I, I knew it straight off. I think I heard that her son hadn't been very well that night and hadn't slept well. And I know it's an awful thing now as a parent to say, but there was that kind of breath of relief of thinking, okay, I know Noelle would have been with her son if he wasn't well and she hasn't slept well. And that's my advantage today. That's what I have from this situation. So I went into the third run. Um, I was before Noelle in the running order and I extended the half a second lead to three quarters of a second. And only at that point, I think I got back in the truck with my sled and I hid my face behind my sled and I just had a bit of a smile thinking okay we are almost almost there it's one more run you know I just gotta that's the only moment I thought maybe I've got something near this you know maybe maybe is that enjoyable is that enjoyable (laughs) Um, I'm just almost imagining you, you want to enjoy the moment of gosh this that's exciting and that's appetizing but you don't want to get carried away you almost perhaps got to feel as though you shut that down how does that feel I gave myself like half a minute of <laughs> thinking maybe this is it. <laughs> and then you're straight back to... You, because of how my preparation worked, I had mapped out lit- literally minute by minute of I get back to the top of the track, I check my rock in the sled, um, I sort out my bags and chuck more stuff in the truck to go for the down bag. Um, right, I need to get the suit off, I need to get into my normal kit, I need to eat something, I need to drink another cup of tea. Then I'm going to do some stretching, then I'll have the nap. So that came early. You intimidate and then the opposition with a nap. <laughs> nap, exactly. <laughs> the nap is essential. And so you're because I'm kind of into that treadmill of prepping for the next run, there was no time to think of anything else. It, and I, I appreciated that because regardless of whether I was winning or not winning, it took me to a place of psychological focus and then switching with the with the skipping or the nap or whatever I needed. I just, I, I, I sort of automatically took myself there. Mm, oh, that's interesting. I think that's whenever I've prepared that sort of pre-competition routine, whether it is a certain type of warm-up or a certain t- regimen of supplements, for example, um, I, I've, I've sometimes wondered whether athletes really care what's on there. It's the it's the structure, it's, it's the it's process, something. it's it's having something to channel their attention into, as opposed to letting their thoughts spiral out of control in that way. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, and and then okay, so and, and tell me about the 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 winning run. I I made a real cock up actually on the winning run. So I there were two left-hand corners. 
I was totally focused. We had a long lead into corner one. It was like a really long run in. And then corner one, quick switch into two. And I forgot to steer corner two. And it, you needed to do something. Sometimes you do something, sometimes you don't. And it experiences that knowledge of knowing. And I forgot to do something. And I skidded the whole way down between two and three. And that was only important because it was a gradient drop. When it's dropping, you've got to relax, tuck in and take the speed. And I was thinking, oh my God, they're going to kill me. I'll get to the bottom and Andy and Woody are just going to kill me. And then I sort of suddenly sort of switched to, I just need to get into corner three. I just, it's fine. I'll just get into corner three. And clearly I'm going to go from two to three. I'm on an ice track. I can't go anywhere else. But as soon as I was into three, I thought, right, focus. Four was a sweeping, then straight to five, five high pressure. And, you know, I can, I can take, I can literally take myself into that thought process of making the mistake but just switch it back on and then enjoying the smoothness 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 down the bottom of the track we we purposefully made the decision to take lots of hits it was it was using up time or wasting time to over control the sled and avoid some hits on the wall so I'd smack the side go up I think 14 and then hit three we had three more left to the finish line and I'd roll around the corner and then tap the wall roll around the corner tap the wall and I think at the, equally I was thinking, A, this hurts, and <laughs> I, probably not helping my speed, but B, you know, I know what I'm doing and I just need to get to the finish line. I just need to get there. And uh, that was insane. When I, got, when, I, when I finished and I looked up at the clock, it was just an overwhelming exhilaration, like tingles and, wow, it's, it's over, it's finished, I've done it, like the relief that it's over. And then immediately I went to thinking, right, I'm going to have drug testing in a minute, so am I ready for a wee? And I'm hungry, and like the normality kicked in almost immediately, which was very unexpected. <laughs> I might ask you that about that in a moment, but it sounds, I'm, I'm, I'm watching you recall it, and you're, you're going through... It, it almost minutiae uh, of attention that you've you can remember it with such detail. Not only the conversations that you might or might not have to have with your coaches to apologise for uh, for quarter two, compensating, but also sticking with your routine. But almost just how impressive that was. Just to hear your memory of each of the different sec- segments of the of the track. Were you were you that mindful? Was it that much of a flashbulb? memory that it it's just imprinted in there I think that I've probably talked through it so much that I visualize those runs a lot more than I do other tracks so it's part the memory and reliving it but the flashbulb moments really come to me in in odd segments so I had um, physio just before the fourth run and my ankle was really sore I'm like double jointed and Kay, the physio, just kind of rubbed my ankle. And we both knew like what she was doing was pointless. I was, it was going to be fine. And she would just give me a bit of a rub. And it, I just will always remember that moment I was eating a pear. And she was just chatting, trying to be normal. Um, and it, it's not just the runs, the, the runs down the track. It's all those little interactions with people that seem to really stay in my mind. That's what's meant I think meant the most to me as an athlete mm. and so you so drug testing um didn't you really get a chance to to celebrate other than getting onto the podium and <laughs> you see it feels as though a lot of people that have experienced the highs that that you have 
uh, have, have said something similar about how you get quickly switched into the, the mundane or <laughs> the normality. <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of nice. Like I remember hugging. So I, I saw I, I, my coach, Danny, he met me at the bottom of the track as always. And we hugged and uh, he handed me the Union Jack and I walked back towards where where mum and dad and everyone was, and that was insane. Like just because realizing together, looking at each other, that we'd we'd won the gold medal, and it really was a we, the whole we, the team, the family, everyone. You, I hugged them, and James said to me, and um, I said to him, "I love you," and he said, um, "It's gonna go crazy now," because he'd seen what happened with Amy, what after she won gold, how it had just kind of two days of of media tour and, and madness. Um, and then after that point, although it was busy, 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 it was essentially, you know, lovely media interviews. And I was really lucky to, to, to be involved in all of that. But yeah, you've got drug testing and I, I can't wee. I take four hours. I literally take four hours to wee. And I have to, when I go in, I say, look, I'm going to be here for hours. So do we want to get some food? Can we get, <laughs> what do we need? Um, get some downturn you know, on. Let's get some. Yeah, exactly. Let's get some downturn. Anyone want a jelly baby? <laughs> you know their life story by the end. It's quite nice. What was it like then, starting to, to think about the next season or think about uh, continuing on? I very immediately realised that I hadn't yet been world champion. I had at that point of Sochi, I was um, World Cup champion, so winning the series. I was Olympic champion, so if I could get, um, actually, I think I was European champion as well. So I literally had the one left, and if you can get all four within two seasons, um, that's the shortest amount of time you can do it. That was obviously the big hairy goal that was totally on my radar, and. So I came back to the UK. I was desperate to do like a school tour, visiting lots of schools in a short amount of time. Um, so I was signing so many autographs, so much so that my back got a bit worse that year. I had to also manage getting back to training, getting back to form. Um, try not to accept the fact that you lose a bit of form when you're busy trying to open sandwich shops and go to schools and do random things for someone's family's uncle's mate, sister. Um but that that was a busy summer that was hard and my mum also was diagnosed with breast cancer three months after um the win in Sochi so that was a that was challenging being in Bath wanting to be in Kent with family and that whole season leading after the games I was of course focused on competing but hugely emotional at the fact that I just didn't necessarily have the motivation to to grind out being better every day having that self betterment in not only sliding but nutrition strength work everything was was needing to be more 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 i had this big target on my back of course so after that season when i luckily or i say luckily was able to be world champion i worked my butt off and became world champion a year after sochi i had all four you know i, was, I had it i'd done it I decided that I just had to take a break. I didn't know how to say this to the programme. I didn't know how it would be received. But I said, if if I want to go to Pyeongchang, and I want to, I need to take some time to work out what is my motivation and why am I trying to get a gold medal 
when I already have one? What is it that's different? And not about the gold medal, but what's different about it to me? Do you think you needed that burnout feeling to be able to ask those questions of yourself? Because they're quite purpose, they're quite philosophical in terms of your sort of orientation to, to not only your sport, but, but it sounds a bit like to your life too, in, in, in questioning yourself and, um, and where you're going. Um, does that, did that only come from having really flogged yourself through that season? I think I'd probably been flogging myself for years since I was involved in skeleton. It's always been my mentality of any elite athlete that you've, you know, you've got to be prepared to be in the gym longer and and do more sled work. And even my husband said he he was um, he built the sled with Rachel Blackburn. But when we did sled checks, I would be in the the garage far longer than anyone else. My eye for detail was so minute that of course this burnout was probably going to happen at some point and thank goodness it happened I was able to achieve what I achieved um, when I did but I think I was ready to become a bit more than an athlete which sounds really odd but when you've been an athlete for many years and you're sort of given training programs given exercises talked through the plan I needed to somehow have a career development plan I didn't want to just be the athlete for another cycle Although I I had so much to learn from this amazing support team, I also needed to realise in myself that I had a voice. I had something to say. I'd learned something I knew about myself and I wanted to kind of be a part of the journey going into the next Olympics. And actually so much so, that desire was so strong that I had said to my PL, my performance lifestyle advisor, that um, I'd rather win a silver medal and try and do it more my way than do it the same way and win gold. I love that. Which sounds really odd. Well, I, I, I think that's, uh, that, that phrase there, ready to become more than an athlete. <laughs> it's almost as if the, the becoming an athlete is the sort of um, cocoon phase in some ways. Uh, and then you start realising, actually, it's, it's beyond that. It's more than that. And I, th- I don't know whether enough athletes have that realisation, attaching their identity and their self-worth to, to the results that they get in their sport. Um, you've, you've had a real connection with that performance lifestyle service. And I think for those that are listening that haven't got a familiarity with it, that's very much about helping you as an athlete to, to develop the resourcefulness that you need in sport but beyond it yeah it is and it's it's a service that people aren't necessarily sure how to use or why to use it or why do you need a performance lifestyle what does that even mean but I think performing well I I I realized going into Pyeongchang was much more about aiming for more than a gold medal gold medal is an end point it's something physical but to really perform and to be better I had to go way, way, way above and beyond that gold. And then hopefully I just kind of, it would happen on the way. I'd sort of collect it on my way through because also then it sort of took the the pressure, psychological pressure of off of thinking it's just about this physical thing. Actually, it was a, for me, it was about just how good can I be on this day at this random track in Korea I've never really been, been to. But what kind of athlete am I going to be at that stage after being in the sport for 10 years? How do I want to be remembered? You know, it's that thing that everyone loves to say. 
how do I want to hold myself how do I want to to speak to my teammates to my coaches who do I want to be as a person and and was that a, a switch point where you've gone from being the recipient almost a passenger on the plane a recipient of services a recipient of coaching through to piloting the the craft and this is what I need team because I I think that's quite an important pivot point for for an athlete, particularly in the senior sort of stages, that they go, actually, this is the way I'd like to do it. Did that feel like a conscious choice at that that phase where you're you're timing out from the sport? It was definitely a conscious change. It was a discussion that I had with many of the team members to just talk through. This is what I'm thinking. This is how I'm hoping it would work, and that I needed their help and their guidance along the way. It wasn't something that I was going to put on the team or do by myself. I just wanted a seat at the table. So we made lots of changes, and the team were amazing. Actually, they they did. I felt as though they really listened to me. Now, you know, after Pyeongchang, I do reflect back and think, what did they do differently? I wonder if they treated every athlete in this way. But it was the feeling that I I felt empowered. I felt listened to, and uh, we did this thing every month called a critical review. So I, Eric, my sliding coach, and Ed, my S and C coach, we would sit in a room always physically together I wanted to make sure we heard each other's voices we heard firsthand what 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 we were really emotionally thinking about things and the mistakes or the things that weren't going so well there were owned mistakes there were owned developments or changes and we critically analyzed everything came up with a plan together and then went again for another month and just that sim- that simple difference of thinking I don't have to own up to making mistakes and be in trouble for them. Not that that was necessarily the case, but to know that I can be a part of making the mistakes, which are essential, but also of making it this mistake a success. Mm. I'm a part of it. Was was hugely motivational. I often get asked about you know what are the characteristics of high performance teams, and probably the, it's easy to focus on things like blame or sort of those corrosive behaviours that just take away from that positivity of, of, of being constructive and looking forward. I often say the simplest thing is, is to debrief. Um, and debriefing as an exercise can identify characteristics that you can improve for tomorrow. But the very simple exercise of debriefing turns your experiences and the events that have happened f- from mistakes into fuel or firepower for the future um, that sounds like a very powerful exercise that you were not only part of, but but active in too. Yeah, and I, I was grateful to be a part of that critical review process, I have to admit. I was great, grateful that people were prepared to be a part of it as well. But I think what you're saying about debriefing is so key, because especially when you've had a bad day, to just kind of air it out, saying stuff just kind of breaks it down a bit. And to know that you're like not the only one who's made these mistakes, the people that you're talking to, your team, your coaches, have probably seen it all before and know what to do next. So, um, yeah, t- talking, I think, is, is always the best therapy. <laughs> and so what was what was different going into Pyeongchang versus Sochi? What was, what was Lizzie Arnold? If you compare the two Lizzie Arnolds, what was different? I, it was it was awful going into Pyeongchang. It was awful. So I... Oh, gosh, I can't... They were worlds apart. Sochi, I was on top form. It was my race to lose kind of thing. Pyeongchang, I was just 
something wasn't working, something wasn't clicking. I'd in the Olympic season, I'd do a race and it was rubbish. And I'd think, right, it's okay. I've done this before. I need to work harder, think more, think further, train, you know, tougher than everyone else, you know, prep more, all this more, more, more. And the next week, the result would get worse. It's all right. I've done this before. I know what to do. I'll just, you know, ask the right questions, (laughs) train smarter. And it got to a point I came 23rd. So 20 is the cut point where you get a second run or not. I was 23rd. And I was just walking around the car park and in tears. And the Russian team came past, the whole team. And they were just, they were saying something. They were just laughing. And, you know, something like Olympic champion, da-da-da-da-da. And that was a proper low point. It was proper, proper low. And my coach, Andy, he actually said, look, just take the next two weeks. We've got a racing break. Just take the next two weeks. Just, you know, reset, refresh. And um, I had a very honest conversation with my psych at the time. And honesty, I think, is what I really needed, is what on earth is going on? What needs to happen right now? And slowly realising that, when people believed that because because I had been Olympic champion before, because I knew what to do, they trusted that I would kind of pull out the bag and like put on a special suit and, you know, a special superwoman hat and, and make it all all right. You know, I wasn't the athlete that I was before. I had to stop trying to search to be her. I had to work out what was what on earth was going on now. And it was the thing, the thing I was doing too much of was, was thinking, was doing, was you know, expecting too much from myself. I was more intelligent as a slider, but I was forgetting that intelligence. So I had to um, learn to enjoy it again. I basically said everything, or the plan that we came up with, Ed and I, is everything else that isn't enjoyment in sliding just has to be minimised, has to go for a couple of weeks. Everything is about just getting on the sled and finding that intuition finding that peace finding the reactive sliding in the moment that was my intelligence was going down the track and knowing exactly what needed to happen when it needed to happen not this prep prep was learning I'm you know I was getting towards expert level um so then I started clawing back my results going in towards the Olympics I still wasn't GB1 I was selected behind Laura as GB2 and sort of clawed my way into the selection team. So, yeah, it was a tough, tough few years, for sure. Okay, that's really interesting in terms of, it sounds as though a very strong sense of backing yourself, going down to sort of absolutely fundamental principles of your performance versus, you said that that phrase there, expecting too much of yourself. And I think that a lot of people, and I think a few um, commentators like a, like a little catchphrase that is now down to who wants it most. And as you say, that, that more, that, that trying to control or, or making it too effortful can actually choke performance in the sense that you tighten, you're obsessive, you, you don't see the bigger picture. It's not easy flow type performance. Yeah, totally. I think I always spoke about flow state and I almost forgot how to do it. Effortful is is the enemy of success, I think. <laughs> that, I think a lot of people would like, <laughs> are going to take that and, uh, <laughs> and and put that in place if it's if it's effortful. Obviously, there's, there's, there's effort. You're driving in a different way there. You're reminding yourself of, of what's important. 
but you also had a, a number of health issues. Yeah, I almost I almost forget all that stuff to be honest. I was learning more about my vestibular disorder, so I had damage to one of my inner ears that was causing issues on on particular tracks, on particular corners, um, often in high high pressure when I'm changing direction. And that was tricky because it would happen, you know, when I didn't necessarily know it was going to happen. In a race in Altenburg in Germany, a very tough track, um, it happened twice in the race. And, you know, these affect results. Results affect your selection for the games. And fortunately, I had a very strong team, medical team around me who knew what was going on, knew, you know, understood the disorder and knew how it would kind of react and present itself um, so I, I felt very confident and safe with them. So I had my vestibular disorder. I also had a tumour in my knee, which I didn't tell anyone about, but it was causing discomfort. Um, and I also, leading into the games, just the week before, I was, I was sort of picking up and developing this chest infection. Um, so so bad, actually, that I was sent home early because they thought it was pneumonia. Um so yeah, I mean it's funny, isn't it? You sort of you pick pick things up along the way, and you it just becomes a part of the challenge. Vestibular system is quite important, if I would imagine, for skeleton performance. Eyes, ears, proprioception. It's it's quite important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was funny when I went sort of public around it. People would message who had a similar or the same disorder, and one lady said. Every time she puts washing in the machine, she falls into the washing machine because it just something about the motion or that position that just throws her off. And I felt so awful for her. And I'm so grateful that for myself that luckily it doesn't affect me at all in normal life. It was just when I'm doing, <laughs> doing my job or doing the sport that I love. Um, and it was hard to watch. You know, it's hard to watch for family and friends and, and other athletes to see me come off the sled and not be able to stand not know where I am and and it got very emotional for me a lot of anxiety around um the disorder as well um it yeah I think psychologists I know normal people non-sporting people don't really have psychologists but they really helped me work through all of these issues which I, I knew were potentially gonna harm me in Pyeongchang in the track in Pyeongchang, we'd, we'd visited a couple of times. It had never affected me. We didn't anticipate that it would affect me. But of course, on the fourth, on the first run of the Olympics, it, it kicked in. And then how did you, how did you cope with that? Every time I had a vestibular order issue, it was different. It sort of affected me more or less, depending on what had happened. And this particular go, I think including my chest infection I reacted really badly and I went to the top of the track and I charged into the change into the loos in the changing room and I you know when you want to be sick but you don't know if being sick is helpful you just need to like I was hanging over the sink with my wrists under really cold water trying to like think this is going to help I just need to just be sick right now I can't see any I can't, couldn't see my phone I was trying to call James call everyone and just say look guys I feel awful I don't want to go again because I don't feel right but if I go again then know that it's my first place that I have at the moment that's gone that you know I'm just trying to do what I can do and I was over the sink and the physio Louise came in and she was like you're all right and I was like no I'm not all right I feel sick I hate skeleton I don't want to do it I can't do it 
you know, I, I just I feel awful. I don't know what to do. And and she just calmly said, unfortunately, you're quite good at it, Lizzie. So if you could go again, that would be great. Um, and so I just sort of laughed a bit. And uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, she'd been through this protocol with me, the return to performance, you know, so many times. We kind of sit down, try and do what I need to do, have a, a blanket over my face to reset my brain a little bit to calm the vestibular system. Then you'd warm up, you see how the body's reacting. And I seemed to be okay, I could manage. So I did the second run, a survival run, I called it, to just stay in the race. And uh, I came down in like ninth, ninth run time, but I managed to be still in third place. So I was essentially still in the race. That's, that sounds like a difficult conversation from your physio there in terms of just, no, go on, off you go. Because <laughs> it's not, um, <laughs> shall we say, it's not snooker where, you know, perhaps the worst you can get is a splinter. Um, being in control of your faculties and having that anticipation of being able to go down and do that well, but also safely, did you? what was that conversation going in your head of thinking, uh, yeah, I'm struggling with this, but actually it's so close now. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, Louise and I had been through this situation many times and she knew me, she knows me very well. So Louise is very used to kind of knowing what to say in that moment. I think we had about an hour before my second run. So there's, there's a lot of time to, to check how I'm feeling and check in and I knew that I didn't need to make a decision until basically the athlete before me went down the track. So it's, it is a difficult conversation when I was, you know, I was feeling so low and so awful, but I was so grateful that we'd almost been through it all before that I was surrounded by people that knew what to say in that moment. I felt very fortunate that it's not just about the physical stuff. It's not about the sled. Sometimes it's about having that mate next to you, believing in you. And it was a real comeback, wasn't it? I mean, um, how do you how do you process the responding and performing under that sort of pressure, that adversity, um, versus your first gold medal, where you have the form, you you you've got that sort of confidence platform that you can go in everything relatively stable whereas here things are changing and uncertain but you're responding to that are you able to compare the two performances at all I don't think you can compare them and actually I think um, an athlete changes so much in four years that it would kind of be pointless if you did compare them it wouldn't really be a true comparison the tracks are different. The way, you know, it's not 400 metres that it's the same track. It's a different place. It's a different sled that I'm using. It's everything is is adapting and moving on. But I think what I'd say in Pyeongchang is that the things were moving very quickly. By day two of performance, I knew I had a very bad chest infection. Um, we had to adapt all my warm-ups that, you know, I, I said I have it minute by minute worked out. We had to adapt that so the lactic acid wasn't building and I could manage my oxygen intake. Um, and I had to steam. I was trying to steam my face, you know, every 20 minutes, every 15 minutes to try and get something through. And so it it was it was just a kind of a, 
an amazing combination of of having this plan, this really strong plan, but actually allowing myself to be adaptable and having faith in the fact that once I get to the start line and I'm on the block with the sled, it is all on me. It is, I love the fact that I had this amazing support team, but once I'm handed the sled, it's just me in an ice shoot, just literally going for it. And that's the only similarity, I guess, between any race in our sport is that it was all on me. It was my performance, me and the clock. And that's all that mattered. So how did you come back? You've got a, you, you've got a vestibular <laughs> issue. You've got an, a rising chest infection on day two. How did you do it? <laughs> I think I was just chipping away, literally just... <laughs> So run three, I, I it was a survival run as well. I just wanted to stay in the competition. And after three runs, um, instead of no well-being, my competition, it was Janine Flock. So the Austrian athlete, I competed with a lot. But she hadn't performed really at this international level at such a high level. So going into run four, she was in first place. I was in second place. We had two hundreds and then another few athletes of German and, and Laura as well. And I was, I stepped, um, I stepped out of the change rooms, walked along the corridor and down the steps before the fourth run. And I was looking through this glass door at the, at the block and we had a clock and, you know, countdown, two minutes I was going to walk out and it was like two and a half minutes. So I stood there just kind of swaying from side to side. And I heard someone run down the stairs and it was Janine Flock. She ran down, sort of stormed out of the glass door. And I, I was sort of millimetres from grabbing her and saying, no, Janine, it's me first and then you're after. But I stopped because I realised she needed to be out there. She needed the noise to be present. Whatever she needed, she she went there to get it. And also in that moment, I realised that she, her head had gone because she wasn't staying warm, she wasn't working with her process. You know, you don't go and stand outside in minus whatever temperatures for five minutes before you're going to do an explosive run. So I headed out to the start block and did my run as best I could. Um, I think actually that was quite a good run. I didn't make any mistakes in corner two or anything that time. And I knew by the bottom of the track I got at least a silver medal. And my thought was, of course, well, Jessica Ennis Hill got a gold and a silver and that's really awesome so I'm really chuffed that I've <laughs> I've done the same as Jess Ennis Hill um, and then I, I saw Laura quite quickly after she was stood by the telly screen that I'm sure people at home were watching we had the same screen with too many numbers too many colours and we didn't understand anything and watched Janine come down the track and unfortunately for her um, there was one mistake another mistake and it just kind of kept losing time and, and going wrong once I knew I'd got a, goal, a potential gold medal then we were desperately working out whether Laura was also going to make it onto the podium and that was really exciting actually to, to be stood next to Laura who was in fourth place trying to, to, to just eke into the to the uh, podium and that was awesome when we realised we'd both like done it you know the, Sochi was great because I had been successful. Pyeongchang was amazing because we were like on top of the world, but but together. And uh, I'm hugely grateful for Laura's um, partnership, I think, in achieving that together. I, I wouldn't have done it without her. And I wonder if she'd say the same. I don't know, but that was pretty awesome. 
Oh, that's amazing. Well, goosebumps hearing that story in terms of just how you've, I mean, you've spoken so much about the team, the we, the, uh, the fact that this is a journey that you go on together. And it's amazing to hear that in that moment of, of personal success, that your, your attention very quickly moves to your teammates and their experience too. Yeah, oh, it totally does. Because as I said, the T's and the Downton Abbey's, you know, that's not by myself. That's with Laura, with Donna, with others. So I have to, it's awesome to be able to be celebrating, <laughs> celebrating together. And so let's fast forward to t- today. Um, so double Olympic champion, uh, where, where, what happens after and, and, and how are you now thinking? Uh, what's your sort of goals? Have you got any or, or the or, goals sort of superfluous do you need those now what's your focus I think goals are always wonderful in life I wish I had more maybe not physical goals but other things now in life I think I'm still transitioning I retired two years ago but the transition process is is long and it and it has to be long it's it's an emotional journey as well as (laughs) everything else after I retired or, or maybe just before I retired I had that knee operation for the tumour and then my back. I had major issues with my back and had two slip discs worked on. So it's it, becoming kind of a normal person is still very much happening and changing and I'm understanding who I am as a non-athlete. My, I think my dreams are um, to still be involved in sport. I love elite sport and so I'm, I work on the board of the BBSA, which I'm hugely passionate about. It's it's tough work. It's a lot of voluntary work, um, a lot of time. But to, to just be a part of, of an athlete's journey in a different way is really interesting. And then hopefully to become an executive coach, you know, that would be a dream to be able to have conversations with people, to work on their potential and, and what they want to do. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, amazing. So last question for me then, Lizzie. So you, you mentioned that you do school talks and it sounds like a real passion of yours to, to go in and speak to, to children. If you had a back to the future moment where uh, you could go back and and share a message with your younger self, the one that was, was looking up and thinking about the the potential of, uh, of sporting success. What, what, now that you know what you know, what would you tell your younger self? I I always struggle with, with this sort of a dilemma. <laughs> um, Goldie Sayers came into my school at secondary and I'm trying to remember what Goldie would have said to me that obviously really clicked. And do you know what? It wasn't what she said. I went over to her after just literally to talk to her and she had the Olympic like opening ceremony suit on or this lovely suit and in the pins of the pinstripe suit it said Athens 2004 Olympic Games Athens 2004 Olympic Games and I was just like if they have such nice stuff (laughs) and for clothes imagine what the whole Olympic Games is going to be like so I think I'd probably not say something but just maybe show something tangible and or or try and explain the feeling because the feeling to be a part of a team all aiming for this amazing hairy silly goal four years away it's 
it's overwhelming, but you know, it's just so motivating and wonderful when that group of people achieve it. And that success could be anything. It's not gold medals. It is anything. Um, yeah, to, to, I would say to be a part of something, to do something meaningful is such a, a, a privilege. Love that. Love that. Lizzie, it's been amazing talking to you and it's been incredible to watch you over the years. Um, the manner in which you've performed as well as um, exactly what you've just described about that sort of school assembly type moment of, of representing um, your sport so well. It's been an absolute delight hearing you recount your experiences. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lizzie. Now give Lizzie a follow on Twitter and look at her website, lizzyyarnold.com. Hope you follow us on, on social media, Ingham underscore Steve. Connect with me on LinkedIn or follow the Supporting Champion stuff on all the different social platforms. Um, well, I hope as 2020 comes to a close that you enjoyed that conversation. And I just want to thank Lizzie for sharing her story. Thanks to all the guests who have been part of the conversation this year. This is, brings to the close our third year on the podcast. So thank you to everyone who's made a contribution. Thank you to you for listening and, and making the podcast one of your favorites. It means an awful lot. Now, it would be amazing if you, over a sherry or a, or a Guinness, over the Christmas period, if you get a chance to do a review on iTunes or tell others about the show. That would be amazing for us. It really helps get the word out about the podcast. So only one more thank you, and that is to Rachel. That's Rachel Ingham. Hello, Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as we have. Rachel's the partner in crime on this podcast and she lovingly listens, edits, curates, clips all of the podcasts together. So this podcast is very much a team effort. Thank you, Rach. So that's us. We're done for 2020. What a challenging year it's been. And I hope that you have looked after yourself. I hope you've looked after people around you. Hope you've made sure that you're taking time out to recognize the things that are really important to you. I hope over the next couple of weeks that you can get some time to rest, recover, connect as much as you can and as safely as you can with those that are near and dear to you. And we're looking forward to sharing some conversations with some more amazing people in 2021. So have a great break, everybody, and we will look forward to connecting with you then.